Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time, hosted by Rick Palmer. For the first time here at Sphere HQ, we have a returning guest, Matt Hopewell, who was on the show last year to talk about Discordianism. This time around, we're discussing some of the unusual phenomena he's experienced over the years and his thoughts on what might have been happening. This includes a discussion on gorillas, which I'm not sure either of us anticipated, but was just as fascinating as the poltergeist activity and possible fey encounter he also describes. Fun stuff as ever, especially if you like gorillas. Enjoy! Matt, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Rick. It's great to be here. Uh, great to be back on since uh, since my first appearance on here. It seems like uh, seems like you've done some really great things with the podcast in the past year, and I'm I'm really happy for you and how well it's gone. So uh, so so good work, Rick. <laughs> oh, oh, thank you. That's that's very kind of you to say. And same to you, man. I mean, since we last spoke, you started up your the blog that you were talking about when we first chatted, and you're also now working with the Live Long Earth project. How are those going? Um, I th- well, I think they're both uh, <clears throat> they're they're both chugging along. I know when I uh, it was actually y- y- the interview with you kind of kickstarted the the blog for me because when I uh, when I had interviewed with you, I wanted to have some kind of a place to point somebody, and I had planned on doing the blog, but it kind of uh, lit a fire under me to get it going so <laughs> so i mean it's uh it's not something i contribute to all the time but uh i i try to get stuff up and i try to put quality posts up there when i do um and i'm pretty happy with how a lot of that came out mm. um and and liminal earth is is great it's a it's a wonderful project i'm really happy to be a part of it and it's um you know, uh, becoming an ambassador with Liminal, Liminal Earth was was not something I, I planned on doing originally, but I've been following them since they were just Liminal Seattle. Right. And uh, I remember looking at it and saying, man, imagine if this covered the whole world. That would be that'd be great instead of just, you know, Seattle, Washington, U.S. <laughs> <laughs> and then they expanded it. So they just keep getting bigger and bigger and the map keeps getting bigger. And um they started this ambassador program where you can become a representative for your area. So, um, as soon as they did that, I, I wanted, I really wanted to jump in and be a part of it. Excellent. I mean, go back to your blog. I would say it's all killer and no filler, right? (laughs) (laughs) That's what I'm going for. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, you're being an ambassador for the liminal earth project. Just tell us a little bit about what that involves, what you're, what you're doing as part of that role. Yep. Okay. Well, um, yeah, I know you had, uh, Jeremy Puma and Garrett Kelly on Hmm. to talk about liminal earth for a full episode, but I think it's even been since then that they rolled out the, uh, the ambassador, uh, program. So the, the idea is that you, you just kind of represent your area for the map. Um, and as a representative, you commit to getting, uh, you know, getting a few, entries in a month of stories that are either personal experiences or stories that you've collected or um, strange places around, you know, we have all these different categories for it. You're also um, involved with other members and other ambassadors. Um, 
people that contribute to the Patreon have access to the Discord chats where we can just kind of chat on a number of topics, um, ask questions, uh, try to get other people's advice on, on how to put these posts together. So whether you're you're a patron or an ambassador, you're you're involved on that level, um, direct contact with with uh, everybody in the group at the same time. Of course, most of us are on Twitter too, and it's easy to reach out. Um, but when when you're when you get to the ambassador point, you're just kind of you know you're representing your area, trying to collect some stories from where you are, uh, promote it, and encourage people to submit their own stories hmm. so um i i love being a part of the project it's the the idea of remythologizing the landscape and uh it, it, getting these stories out there and the fact that you can be anonymous when you when you post it i find that uh you know it's every everybody that investigates the paranormal or ufos or whatever uh you you often hear people say that if you just straight out ask somebody if they've ever seen a ghost or something, you know, right. <laughs> they they might laugh at you, you know, or um, you know, if you just start talking about some of this stuff, it, people are hesitant to share their own experiences. Hmm. But it's kind of it makes it a lot easier if you can if you can submit your story anonymously, you know. And if you've had something weird happen to you and you look on the map and find out that somebody else had a very similar experience nearby where your experience was, it's a, I don't know. I mean, I guess it's a, it's an affirmation that you're not crazy, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a, yeah, it's, just, it's a more of a community to it, isn't it? You're really, you're with like-minded people and you. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and I mean, we're not, we're not casting any judgment or, even really fact checking them. I mean, the story is yeah. stories are important to, uh, to any society, any culture. And we're, we're interested in getting stories from all different cultures and all different points of view. Hmm. Um, people from all walks of life, you know, yeah, especially, you know, people that aren't as often represented or, um, uh, you know, people that otherwise wouldn't be telling the story, you know, and uh and I, and I think that goes for most people even i'm where i'm at now in my day-to-day -day life <laughs> i'll post the craziest stuff on twitter and not not worry what any of my twitter followers or or friends on there are going to say about it but you, you know in your day-to-day -day life you're a little bit more closed off about it you <laughs> wouldn't just go to work and tell people at the office that you know uh that that you saw a ufo over the weekend or <laughs> <laughs> you know something like that yeah but if you did though they'd, they'd be like oh okay i know i know what you mean but i think sometimes people are waiting for one person to start talking about something like that and then because they've taken the first step you know what i mean yeah and i mean really that's that's what it is if you're collecting stories you kind of have to be that guy you know yeah you have to be the one to say i heard this place is haunted you ever seen anything <laughs> or be uh um uh, you know, I thought I saw a Bigfoot in these woods once and wait yeah. and see what, what the reaction is. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, yeah, people tend to open up about stuff uh, and they come right out of nowhere. You know, uh, mm. sometimes I don't expect it at all. Case in point, I got one that's not 
gone up on the map yet. So this is a little inside baseball for you. Um, Ooh, thank you. <laughs> no problem. We're friends. Uh, <laughs> the, the, um, I had asked my friend about a weird story that he told me years ago that when I asked him about it, he couldn't exactly remember the details, but it's a, um, he was at a party and for various reasons with the party, it's kind of difficult to, uh, you know, there might've been some illicit stuff going on there. So it's tough to nail down the exact location and put it in a public map, but <laughs> it, right. it's the basic, the basic crux of the story is when he came out to his car the next day, there was a large handprint on the back window of his car. Um, and he said it was twice the size of like a human hand, like his hand. And he's got pretty decently sized mitts, but the, this print was like a gigantic human hand, you know? Um, and he said he could see crease marks in it like you would with any palm. If you were to like read a palm, the impression left on there was kind of had those same kind of striations. Um, and it wasn't smeared or smudged. It didn't look like somebody drew it on. It just like mm -hmm. looked like some gigantic thing put its hand on the back window as it was walking by. Um, so upon asking him about that, he shared a video with me on Facebook about the monster of Coca-Cola Ledge in North Adams, Massachusetts. So, um, you know, the, the video is by Jeff Belanger. He's a paranormal researcher in Massachusetts and has been for a long time. The guy's been really cataloging a lot of ghost stories and monster stories in the state for quite a while and has a video series. He's been on TV shows. Um, and he said he wasn't able to find anybody that saw this Bigfoot-like creature in North Adams. But it supposedly sometimes is on this rock face called Coca-Cola Ledge because the Coca-Cola company had put their logo on it years ago um, as kind of a makeshift billboard or a naturally occurring billboard. They just painted their logo up there. Um, but according to Belanger, he said he couldn't find anybody that's actually seen it. And he uh, suspects that it was one of those helpful myths. Like they right. would tell the children that it's a myth. Don't, don't go up on that ledge because there's a monster when the real reason you wouldn't want to go on the ledge is because you could fall off of it, you know? And I guess people have fallen off of that rock face and been killed. So, um, so, I mean, it was an interesting video given the fact that my, my friend had seen this handprint on his car and there is some sort of a legend about a monster in North Adams. Right. And, yeah. <laughs> but um, with that, with that video being posted up, you know, I commented on it like, great, that's interesting stuff. And then another friend jumped in and tells me he's he uh, he saw a gorilla in North Adams back in 1970 <laughs> when he was driving through. <laughs> and it's just like, OK, wait, what? <laughs> you saw a gorilla, you know, so I had to call him up and get the skinny on that. And um, and, and so that's 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 going to be a future lim liminal earth post is uh gorilla sighting in, in North Adams, Massachusetts. No, I, I like it. In the Strange Familiar podcasts, they did an episode about gorilla sightings in the sort of in the 1930s and 40s, I think. It was almost like gorilla was the term used for Bigfoot. Yeah, even earlier than that. I mean, yeah, Timothy Renner has gone way back into um, old newspaper descriptions mm -hmm. of 
guerrilla sightings uh, in in uh, Pennsylvania mostly because that's where he lives. But it's yeah. e- so it's easy for him to go to a, the easier to go to historical societies and get the information he needs. I saw him give a whole presentation on that, and it's it's um, it's fascinating because he could actually track the movement of the sightings of gorillas in Pennsylvania from uh, in a chronological order. They seem to be moving, I guess, like in an easterly east southeast kind of direction as though they were migrating or something, you know, because you would see the sightings here on one date and the next month they'd be a little bit further to the east and a little bit more south would be newspaper accounts mm. of gorillas and um <laughs> and uh yeah it's i saw him give a presentation on that in uh, warwick rhode island and it, it was it was pretty mind-blowing but i think a lot of these things get lost in the in the description because you have to understand uh historically speaking the gorilla wasn't even considered a real animal until about 1900 yes um yeah, I mean, Western explorers going into Africa and stuff thought it was just a legend until mm. they, they've discovered, like, and, and, you know, I think it was about 1901 that the mountain of mountain gorilla in Africa was, was uh, recognized as a real creature, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so for the early part of the 1900s, gorillas were huge. That's uh, the first half of the 20th century. It was almost like a gorilla... Um, uh, I don't know. Gorillas went viral. Mania. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, people went ape over them. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, brilliant, man. That's very yeah. cool. If you watch a lot of old comedies, like, though, from the 20s and stuff, you have a lot of men in gorilla suits because that was just a popular monster. Yeah. And then, of course, King Kong, uh, um, that came along. But prior to gorillas being recognized as a real creature, what you had was wild man stories. Hmm. And in the U.S., there were a lot of, you know, they would just call him a wild man, you know. And I, I guess in uh, Europe and, and U.K., you have similar things, but that's kind of disputed over there. Uh, mm. It's not the same as um, what we have here. I don't know. The, the, the history of Bigfootery is something that I've been kind of rolling around in my head recently, but those thoughts aren't exactly fully formed yet. It seems like ripples of, it seems like since the, Patterson Gimlin film sort of ripples have, have extended out back in time and forward. So I feel like the phenomenon of Bigfoot has reached back into time from that moment. It seems like that was a pivotal moment in Bigfootery because it put it into the yeah, public, I think so. A, I a think, larger public consciousness, didn't it? Yeah, I think you're probably right. Because prior to that, the only word you had for a wild man like that that was common was the abominable snowman. Yeah. which referenced the you know Tibet and and uh, you know Asia, the, the the just the the abominable snowman was kind of the term you know yeah uh, so I think even I can't remember if it was Gimlin or Patterson I think it might have been Patterson one of his early books on Sasquatch was actually called like the abominable snowman of America you know <laughs> <laughs> so yeah yeah you're right I mean um, Sasquatch and Bigfoot as terms only really go back about that far uh, mm. as far as the popular imagination is concerned. But um, yeah. And I guess that kind of makes sense because Bob, the man who saw the gorilla in North Adams, that, I mean, that was his term for it. He just said um, what appeared to be a gorilla, you know, he said it, it was a, 
a large shadowy figure at this rest stop where he had stopped to take a nap and it was a uh, um, bigger than a human bigger than a human and bigger than your average black bear and then mm-hmm. it kind of ran at him <laughs> you know right and he said it didn't move at all like a bear does so i mean you know i don't have much to go on beyond the description he gave me i mean it very well could have been a bear could have been a very weird bear black bears can yeah. get pretty big although normally the ones you'd see are, are much smaller but um uh yeah, I don't know. It's interesting that he would say gorilla and not Sasquatch. You know. Yeah, I mean, going back to what you were saying, I suppose gorillas are one of those animals which have a they have a presence in, in popular culture, don't they? Through King Kong and Mighty Joe Young yeah. and things like that. And you uh, know, in DC Comics, the one of the Flash's enemies is a super intelligent gorilla. And I think there's some yeah, Gorilla Grodd. Gorilla Grodd. Yeah, and there's a and there's like Gorilla City and everything, and you know, and the I, I, I should just mention at this point that I'm a huge fan of gorillas. It's just like famous gorillas, pop culture gorillas. <laughs> I, I love it. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I definitely. So, but it's interesting that there is sort of the the gorilla, the natural, the gorilla of the natural world, and then there is this sort of gorilla that exists in the imagination. Yeah, the archetypal gorilla. Our archetypal gorilla. So, as much as you know, it's fascinating to think that there could be gorillas in in new England and these areas. And it's, I'm always intrigued by the idea of the existence of something in a non-physical way, but which can act in a physical manner. It can, it can exist in the material world. We see what I mean. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. I mean, and, um, the, you know, that gets into whether you consider Bigfoot or, or mystery creatures in general to be a biological entity or something more akin to ghosts and fairies, something that has, uh, um, a mystical or esoteric form to it, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm kind of shooting from the hip at this point, but, uh, <laughs> but I mean, I, what I was kind of getting to with the, with the history of Bigfoots is, uh, with the abominable snowman, there's a lot of overlap between the, the Tibetan monks and culture there too, mm. with the belief in such a creature and I started wondering recently, with with a lot of the occult being driven from uh, the East and the Orient, you know, they would always had these Eastern Orient adepts. It's kind of like a, almost a Western alchemical fetishism with, with the East. Yeah. I, I wonder if that same kind of fascination with a place that was kind of mysterious and unexplored fed into the idea of the abominable snowman and then eventually became the Bigfoot. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of overlap there. And I think, I think in our modern day and age, we have so much pop culture around us that pop culture has fed itself into the archetype of, or the archetypal pool of the collective unconscious. Yeah. So if we were to be manifesting things that are in the popular imagination, uh, the popular imagination has become overpopulated in a lot of ways, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it, or it's become populated with such a variety of things that it's yeah. no wonder that you see so many different kinds of humanoids and uh, other types of creatures in UFO contact situations, you know, or uh, so many different kinds of cryptids, you know. Mm. So it, it's all pretty fascinating um, if they are projections from the human mind or 
tulpas or thought forms or you know even extra dimensional entities taking the form of something we might recognize the the pool they have to draw from is is astoundingly uh deep <laughs> at this <Yeah>. point <laughs> and yeah even just gorillas you know i think it would be great if somebody just made a, a tarot deck of of archetypal images from pop culture right i thought you were going to say if you were a tarot deck which i would love <laughs> well i i do have a bigfoot playing card deck around here somewhere oh cool but <laughs> but yeah i mean the pop yeah the gorilla i think is is um is is sort of an archetype and i think i think it harkens back to people's uh inner need to be connected to nature and have kind of more of a feral animalistic aspect to themselves yeah i mean gorillas are, you know they're not too distantly re- related to ourselves and they are more connected to nature aren't they so yeah yeah and we can communicate with them you know mm. they can be taught sign language which is astonishing um it's uh i don't know gorillas are very interesting in fact right here in new england we had a gorilla run for president once really i know you gotta, <laughs> you gotta tell me this story uh his name was colossus right uh, uh he's um uh he was at bennington farm Oh uh, man, I, I shouldn't have even got into it if I don't have all the info. Oh, it was more of a gag. It was a, uh, a Benson Benson Farm, yeah, right. Benson's Wild Animal Farm in um, in New Hampshire. They entered Colossus into the running for the state uh, primaries to be considered a, a candidate for president. Um, it was more of a publicity thing, you know. It was a it was more of a, a public publicity stunt. Right. <laughs> But you know, I mean, the, he did. He gave it a. He has a card that's in the uh, files with with the New Hampshire state primaries as as having tried to run as a candidate. Anyway, <laughs> he wasn't able to formally put his petition in at at the uh, state house because uh, it would have been too dangerous. But he had a he had a chimp go on his behalf, dressed as a and dressed in a tuxedo, <laughs> and apparently it wreaked havoc in the state house. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it was his emissary, his aide, his political aide, the little chimpanzee. Um, but, but yeah, he was disqualified, uh, not because he was a gorilla, but because he wasn't old enough. Ah, of course, well, he had to be at least thirty-five to uh, to run for president in this country. Right. So, yeah. I think he might have been. I mean, uh, not for nothing, but he'd probably do a better job than the guy we got now. Yeah, I mean, I, I yeah, I, I think so. he's passed away, but you know, still, I, I stand by my statement. Hmm. <laughs> we never know. I mean, it, it might still, it, it might happen one day, right? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah, gorilla twenty twenty. <laughs> Any somewhat docile gorilla twenty twenty. You know? <laughs> <laughs> cool. So anyway. Let's get on to your listener story, which you sent to me a little while ago. Yeah. It's really fascinating. So, yeah, just um, just tell us about this experience that you had. Oh, okay. Um, sure. So, yeah, this is also something that's not on the map yet. I haven't hmm. really figured out a way to put it on there. Uh, involves the house I grew up in, which I know, you know, obviously no longer live in. But um, other people live there now. <laughs> and... Uh, just as a note for anybody listening, if you do want to put a house on there, we recommend putting like the nearest intersection or somewhere kind of close to the house, but not 
not necessarily the house specifically because for that reason you don't want not that it has happened or might but you always have people that are like amateur ghost hunters trying to show up and bother people so we don't want right. that happening but hmm. <clears throat> it was the house i grew up in it was a suburb i grew up in a, a suburban kind of town just outside of worcester massachusetts and um the house i lived in was very old i mean um by by american standards pretty old it was built in 1779 um wow i know in the uk you have places much older than that so <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty old <laughs> yeah i mean it, it, the the man who built the house served in the revolutionary war and uh came back and built built the place so you know a uh, new england colonial home with a in-law apartment added on to it so it was always kind of uh a place that you might think is haunted anyway. Uh, so this is probably my earliest experience that I can remember as, as a very small kid. I always, growing up, I always figured that this happened when I was two or three, but uh, a, uh, it occurred to me after a while that we had bunk beds in, um, in my room that I shared with my brother, and I wouldn't have been up on a top bunk with my brother sleeping below unless I was a little older. So probably about five or six. Um, so I was about five or six years of age. Uh, as a side note here, I might add in that I tend to be skeptical of people's stories when they talk about being a very small child, because it's hard to remember accurately things from when you're a little kid and your imagination is much stronger. Hmm. Um, and it's harder, it's easier to confuse things that may have been dreams. So even for my own story, over the years, I've gone back and forth with whether it really happened or if it was something I dreamt, you know. Hmm. But um, but I don't know. Uh, I guess people can judge for themselves. I'm just throwing that out there. Uh, you can see, even though I'm in, way into all the weird stuff myself, it's even kind of hard to tell stories sometimes. <laughs> you feel a little silly. Uh, but w what happened is uh, I was on the top bunk and I woke up. Uh, or I guess I, I I was only half asleep and there was a pair of lights just kind of bobbing around at the end of my bed. Uh, so we're talking about four feet off the ground, four and a half feet off the ground, just kind of at the very end of the bed, uh, just kind of bobbing up and down. Uh, I've referred to them as orbs over the years, but I don't really have a good description of them other than there were two separate points of light that just kind of seemed to float with no source of uh, support or or anything else. Um, as a little kid, I thought of them as gloves. I used to kind of refer to them as gloves because the first thing my, my five or six-year-old mind came up with when I saw a pair of, you know, glowing white things at the end of my bed was kind of like those gloves that you would see on cartoon characters hmm. from from olden days. You know, like Mickey Mouse always had white gloves. Yeah, um, yeah. or old robots would you know, like robot hands that would come out in. Oh yeah, yep, yep. <laughs> I mean, all, all, a lot of the Looney Tunes characters too. It's like yeah. Bugs Bunny. Um, I came to learn more recently that that's actually like a holdover from uh, from like minstrel shows. Oh, okay. <laughs> Prior to that, so it's a it's not cool. But it is what it is. It's because it was easier than drawing hands. I have to. Admit. <laughs> I I would have assumed that too, but it's kind of. I guess that was that was like part of the outfit for mm. for minstrelsy. So it's 
I don't know. It's I'm just uh, I'm just kind of covering my bases here with that. <laughs> just uh, take the opportunity to say that's not cool. Yes, uh, of course. We're accepting of a whole lot of things at Liminal Earth, but um, any kind of hatred and and bigotry or you know uncool yeah. stuff like that is uh, usually out. You're <laughs> don't even try it. So um, uh, yeah, but that that's I mean, as a child, that's like a pair of gloves. You know, it's like is Mickey Mouse hanging out at the end of my bed? You know, like that that would. Uh, that, so I had a sense of wonder about it, and that's kind of how I was I was uh, reacting to it. It's just, well, there's something at the end of my bed. It, it could be something friendly. It could be Mickey Mouse. It could be anything. Kind of, kind of wants to wants me to go there, and I crawled to the end of the bed to get a better look at them. And these two bobbing orbs of light, or you know giving off kind of light around them. So I guess more of a star shape um, actually started talking and, and they asked me a series of questions. Uh, they just seemed kind of curious and uh, I could hear these voices basically asking who I was, um, what I was doing there, you know, uh, just stuff like that. Like, where are you? I think it was just a lot of very straightforward questions that, almost seemed kind of weird to ask, you know, because um, hmm. to my mind, I'm like, well, you silly pair of lights. This is my room. Like, <laughs> what do you mean? What am I doing here? You know? Um, and I told them my full name. Cause I mean, it's one of those things when you, you're, you're a child, your parents teach you to give how to address yourself and give your name if you're lost or something. So I kind of treated it like that. You know, I said, I gave my full first, middle, last name. I gave them the address where we were, you know. Um, and it, it was it was almost as though once they had gotten the answers from me, they had uh, that that it was almost as though I had asked them to leave. You know, hmm. it was a very strange thing. They there was a sense of disappointment that I got even though they didn't say anything to that effect. I just felt like these two little lights at the end of my bed that were asking me questions were, were just kind of taking the answers and saying, Oh, very well, I guess we have to be on our way, you know, <laughs> something like that. And they started to just kind of float toward the window. And um, my first impulse was to like, ask them not to go. I wanted to like roll over and be like, no, wait, don't go, you know, come back. You know, like, I want to play some more. Yeah. But they they went out the window. Um, the window was closed. They just kind of passed through it. But as that was happening, I, I started to become overcome with exhaustion and just tired. And I just started falling back toward the bed and, and, and laying back on my pillow. And um, that's where it got weird. Hmm. The rest of the stuff wasn't weird. <laughs> if it wasn't weird enough already. Um, <laughs> it was... Because as I my head hit the pillow, I I could see my own body, going coming to rest in the bed, and I kind of floated away from it. Um, and when I I went kind of like went out the window the way they went, but then it was black for a second, and then the next thing I see is a bunch of balloons, like party balloons, and as the balloons kind of spread apart, I could see into the window of a uh, McDonald's restaurant that was right in the middle of my hometown um and there was a birthday party going on and then that was all i saw 
So when I woke up in the morning, it was like I had this very vivid dream of a McDonald's and a birthday party. And I knew I had talked to these things. I probably told my parents about it and told them I had talked to Mickey Mouse or I had talked to a pair of gloves. Hmm. And it's the kind of thing as a parent where you just go, that's that's great, honey. Go go play. <laughs> like, uh, you know, you, you wouldn't take too much note of it. But um, the exciting part to me was that uh, it was one of those kind of fantasy dreams in a way. It was just like, wow, you know, there's no McDonald's in my hometown. You know, McDonald's is a special treat when you're five or six years old in the 1980s. Mm. It's a, that, that's something you would, <laughs> in, in my small town, we, we had not a lot of things. I mean, for years we had to leave town to go grocery shopping. You know, it wasn't, we didn't have fast food other than just like a Dunkin' Donuts, you know? Mm. Um, and, and so, I mean, if we did go to McDonald's, it was usually when we were traveling and stuff like that or out and about for the day. Um, and, uh, you know, every kid in the 80s loved a Happy Meal. So uh, it was a couple of years later that they actually started developing a McDonald's right in that plaza that I had seen in the dream. Mm. <laughs> and when we were driving by, uh, I saw the golden arches going up and I was like, what? My mom's like, yeah, they're, they're building McDonald's there. So uh, actually, we're thinking of having a birthday party for you and your brother there this, uh, this summer. <laughs> uh, yeah, just as a side note, my brother and I have the same birthday, but it's two years apart. Mm-hmm. So we had the same birthday party. But um, It's handy. But <laughs> yeah. Oh, it made things easy for my folks, for <laughs> sure. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I mean, that's that's the one thing that keeps me thinking from thinking that the encounter with the entities and the dream slash out of body experience part of it. I mean, that all could have been a dream, but even if it all was a dream, it was still, uh, still sort of a weird premonition that I was going to have a birthday party at a McDonald's mm. one year, you know, and McDonald's that didn't exist yet. Yeah. And so the, the questions that they asked you, that's, that's intriguing as well. Cause that's, that's something that pops up in these sort of experiences too, isn't it? Not not so much with what you encountered, sort of small balls of light, but in encounters, for example, with men in black, they'll ask questions. And there was an airship kind of sort of flap in the late nineteenth century, and and there'd be yeah. crazy stories about some like a farmer being woken up, and there'd just be this big airship in his field, and. And the person getting out of the airship would just ask for water or something. And it's not exactly the same, but it's it's interesting when when these entities sort of ask you something. Like, you wonder no, I know what you mean. where they're from. Why are they asking these questions? Why, why are they asking for this information? It's, it's, in, it's very interesting. Yeah, I mean, um, it seems like they're very curious about the presence of a small child that's on a bed that's four feet in the air, you know? Yeah. Um, asking asking these questions like they're just as perplexed by that as any nor any average person would be about a pair of lights dangling in the sky you know so they they're asking directly like who are you what are you doing here you know <laughs> so um uh i i don't know there's there's a lot of different ways you could look at that sort of stuff and um I've always read about all of this stuff. I mean, that's where my interest began probably five or six years old. And I was a pretty early, I was a pretty early reader. Uh, I've um, been reading since, I don't know, my mother tells me two and a half, but that seems, seems pretty crazy. 
but reading pretty consistently, like um, above above uh, where my peers were at. Right. But I, I mean, I devoured books about ghosts and monsters and and all kinds of stuff, you know. Mm. Um, and one thing I never really read about when I was younger was uh, was fairies. I didn't really get into fairy lore. But more recently, looking at that, I mean, that's that's a common characteristic in fairy myth is fairies will ask you a bunch of questions. Hmm. And I, I've been told or I've read that um, one thing you're definitely not supposed to do with fairies is give them your name. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so it's almost like, whoops. And it's like, maybe that's why I've experienced so much other crazy stuff in my life. You know, <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe I was fairy led early on, you know. Um, at least in an astral sense, and it's it's just been something that's recurred in my life over and over since then. Mm. I mean, I've never seen those particular things again. That was the only time I ever saw that. Um, and and I, I don't think I've had that kind of communication before uh, since then. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, some of the fairy lore kind of squares up with, with that experience. Yeah. Um, Beyond that, I've even entertained crazier ideas. Like it was some kind of a, a junction in, in in a time slip sort of situation. Hmm. Like I like to think that maybe I was encountering paranormal investigators from the future what? that were investigating the ghost of a small child that was hovering about four feet in the air. Well, yeah, <laughs> I mean, that would make sense as to why they're asking questions and why they seem right. sort of confused because... Those are all ghost hunters questions. Yeah. You know, exactly. like a ghost hunter would say, like, who are you? Like, where are you? You know, give us a sign, something like that. And for me, it's just, so maybe what they're encountering is, is um, the impression left from when I was there before, like a glitch in the, in the, um, in the time stream, you know, some kind of little ripple effect where, where the past and future kind of overlap. I mean, it, it definitely, like I was saying before, it's the questioning element of, of your experience, which is, is really intriguing. And, and the, the, the thing that followed afterwards with, with you being shown that, that sort of vision of, of your party at McDonald's, I mean, how does that <laughs> relate to it all? I mean, what was that all about, do you think? Well, I've also, in telling this story, I mean, this is something I kind of kept to myself for years. And... um that's been another outstanding part of the past year is I've had this sense of community and been able to talk to people via Twitter and other, other, uh, internet outlets, talk to people all over the world and get their opinions on these things. And, uh, also attending conferences and, uh, listening to podcasts, you build up information you might not have otherwise come across unless you read all the books. Yeah. believe me if i read all the books that i have right now it would have to be like a twilight zone situation where uh, <laughs> i'm burgess meredith saying there is time now <laughs> <laughs> and I, I don't wear glasses so it would work out better for me um i see i do wear glasses so yeah, I've, yeah. <laughs> you just keep a spare rick Make sure you have, um but uh yeah, I mean, getting all this other information that I or ideas that I are out there that I would never would have had before. There is the other idea. I think I think one of your guests might have alluded to it actually that, that fairies can bestow second sight. Hmm. I mean, if they don't take you away to fairy world or whatever or something like that, like some people that get are touched by by the the good folk or the fae 
or left with, you know, what you would call second sight, you know, visions of the future or clairvoyance or that kind of thing. Yeah. So, so I mean, that, that, that squares up with that too. But it mm. also seems almost like an out-of-body experience. So um, if you get really deep into that subject, you, you, there, there's no... Uh, I, I think time is, is a bit irrelevant when you're not stuck in a corporeal form, you know? Yeah, I mean, I would agree there. I mean, it, it does, you do get the sense that perhaps these entities, I mean, clearly these entities didn't experience reality the same way that we do. So right. I guess, and they and they are you know, asking where you are and what time it is. I guess that, that means that they don't experience time the same way that we do. And I mean, I, I'm always intrigued by the idea that, you know, when we dream, we're sort of accessing a, a realm that, may as well be a place it may as well be a yeah a, a realm essentially and yeah in dreams time from my own experience i don't really recall experiencing time in dreams you sort of you you move from moment to moment in in your dreams and you, you never you, yeah and it's not necessarily linear you know sometimes yeah and sometimes things kind of repeat themselves yeah yeah you don't have a dream where you remember spending you know, three hours getting from one place to another and then your dream carries on you just sort of you're doing something and then you're doing something else and and so on and so on so oh yeah and then there are those dreams that feel like they last for days and Mm. you wake up and realize you'd only been asleep for an hour or two you know yeah (laughs) so yeah so i mean if dreaming is sort of and i do think that you know there, there are everyday dreams which are just sort of very much relative to the day you've had but then some cultures have the idea of small dreams and big dreams and i think yeah. the, the sort of the bigger dream scenario is perhaps where you're engaging more with this sort of an imaginal dream realm and and that could be populated by something that could be populated by entities and then if these are the th- well i think my, my, my personal idea is that it's a, it may allow access to other planes mm. I think I think that that it, sometimes you're dreaming and it's just the product of your mind. But yeah. while you're in that altered state, there there might be a door that you can open up that'll bring you somewhere else. You know? Yeah, yeah. I think that's so. Synopsis. I mean, you've had a few people on talking about surrealists, mm. like uh, like Ayatol Calhoun and um, Leonora Carrington and stuff like that. Um, but that's an idea in surrealism, mm. and I don't think. I don't think a lot of people realize it, but but when you read the way the Surrealist Manifesto was written by Breton and others, um, the language in it seems like they're talking about more than just art. You know, yeah, they're not just talking about poetry or art. I mean, they're talking about a concept of reality. <laughs> so, and, and that's where surrealism comes from. It's a super reality. You know, mm. it's it, it's it's the uh, emancipated imagination which is the greater reality beyond the physical that we see. So it's, it, it could be read through a mystic lens, you know? Um, and a lot of that is derived from dreams. So like Dali, for example, was used a lot of dream imagery in what he did. Yeah. Uh, and the whole idea is not to, not to, uh, not to characterize the things you're drawing or painting or, or try to layer meaning on it. It's just whatever you pull from your subconscious and mm-hmm. the, the meaning makes itself apparent later. Those images are a lot more 
important uh, uh, on on this realm of of super reality of a super spectrum of of reality. So, uh, yeah, I think I kind of wandered off topic a little bit, but <laughs> <laughs> no, no, man, it's all good. I get what you mean. So, when you were growing up in that house, um, were there other odd experiences? Was it was it because you mentioned it being such an old house? Oh yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, I can't believe we're 44 minutes in already. Because, I mean, that, that's the tip of the iceberg for that house, really. I mean, okay, it, okay. Growing, gr- growing up was, uh, um, I had that one odd experience. And for years and years into my into my upbringing, uh, I, our, my cousins would be over every day and we had friends over every day. So it was, my mother was dealing with like six or seven kids in the house. Right, <laughs> pretty wow. much every day. So uh, just me and my brother and my cousins and a friend or two. So um, it, it was it was a pretty chaotic environment anyway. But I I grew up with with a massive amount of poltergeist activity happening in that place. Hmm. So uh, that that strengthened my my interest in these subjects. And I mean, I was reading I was reading studies by J. B. Ryan when I was like ten or eleven just trying to get to the bottom of what was going on <laughs> wow. reading old parapsychology stuff because, uh, and watching TV shows like sightings and, and, uh, unexplained mysteries. Um, and, and, uh, I mean, I've seen some pretty outstanding examples of, of poltergeist activity. Uh, and pretty early on, I decided that what it was, it was more akin to, uh, there was a parapsychologist named William Roll who developed the idea that some poltergeist activity is a form of recurrent spontaneous psychokinesis. So one or more people have the ability to move things with their mind, but they have no control over it, which gets back into the whole subconscious thing, you know, in dreams. And, and it's the, the part of your mind that isn't active or making active decisions about what's going on around you. Mm-hmm. But the subconscious, the quieter part of your mind, it's lashing out in a way that's psychical and moving objects in the room without anybody touching them, you know? And since you're, you're unaware of that effect being coming from you, it seems like an external thing doing it, you know? Yeah. Because that kind of activity followed me to different places I worked or lived beyond that, uh, that house. Mm-hmm. So that's where I got that idea. But I did, um, I think the most outstanding, example of it i saw was a heavy nightstand that was next to the bunk bed that me and my brother had at this point we moved to a bigger room that was next to the room where i saw those lights and the room where i where i saw the lights became known as the spare room or you know like a little guest room that nobody ever used so Mm. it was a it became like the dreaded spare room you know it became the spooky place that nobody ever went in and um when we started experiencing activity, it was always the door to that room would pop open and uh, we'd, we had a little latch to latch it shut and the latch would pop open and the door would pop open. And sometimes it would go as far as the hook would let it uh, on the latch and then we'd just hear scratching on the other side. So it's a spooky thing for sure. That's how the activity started manifesting. But I think the most impressive example of it was my cousin and I were leaving our the bedroom and about to head down the stairs uh to go outside and i turned around to talk to my cousin who was just behind me and behind her 
about a foot or so behind her, she had just crossed the threshold out of the door, was uh, this nightstand that I think I think my mom had built it out of wood, but it was really heavy, and it was full of old books and comic books and magazines and and uh, and stuff like that. So it was heavy as hell. This thing was levitated in the air about two feet off the ground right behind her and turned 90 degrees. So um, I turn around to say something to her and I'm awestruck by this levitating nightstand, levitating sideways nightstand. And uh, before I can say anything, it just drops out of the air and lands hard on the ground, Hmm. which just kind of shook the whole second floor of the house because I mean, the thing was damn heavy. And uh, the next thing I hear is my mother just, I hear her throw down whatever it was she was holding at the moment and say, what was that? <laughs> she comes stomping up the stairs. So, uh, yeah, we got in a lot of trouble as kids for things that the poltergeist did. Right. <laughs> but I mean, I can't account for that. Uh, there's a lot of, a lot of weird stuff happened in that house and elsewhere that I couldn't account for in any other way than poltergeist or recurring spontaneous psychokinesis um something supernatural anyway yeah or something natural that has yet to be cataloged that way but that was the most outstanding just because of the weight of the thing you know it's interesting when poltergeist activity starts to form its own identity so i'm thinking of things like something like the bell witch or in isle of man there was uh, jeff the mongoose I love Jeff the Mongoose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too, man. <laughs> and with, with those cases, it's, it's funny how that activity took on its own personality. It, it almost becomes separate. But, you know, there's clearly that connection with, you know, young young children. And, and that connection between adolescence and poltergeist activity seems pretty strong. But it's, it's interesting how it, it can take its own, on its own personality. And in the Enfield poltergeist case as well, there was a ghostly entity. One seemed to be making itself known, didn't it? Like It took on yeah, the personality yeah, of, absolutely. Of, of an old man. It's so interesting as to what is really going on with it. It's really hard to kind of get a definite answer. I'm not sure we ever will, but it's that element of it is intriguing. Well, all right. Well, I have a couple of thoughts on that. First of all, as far as getting an answer... Um, <laughs> I'm not particularly interested in answers. I just like observing the phenomenon. <laughs> but that being said, the conjecture part is really fun. Yeah. So I, I've <laughs> uh, I've started to think recently that some something some mysterious things are mysterious simply to fulfill the function of being a mystery. Uh, yeah. Mysteries are just there to inspire us and to get the brain working a different way. Um. Uh. As far as characterization or personalization of a poltergeist entity goes, it plays directly into uh, what we were just talking about with dreams and the subconscious and stuff like that. If you encounter someone in your dream, whether it's someone you know or a dream character that doesn't exist in real life so far as you know, um, what you're seeing isn't, isn't that person, right? This is the way a lot of dream interpretation people would tell you. is uh, if you, If you were to see me in a dream, it wouldn't be me appearing in your dream. It would be some part of you that's being represented by me right there. Right. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, if you come up with a character identity for a poltergeist and it is emanating from you, it's not unlike that. It's a, you're, you're um, attributing a personality to something that's really just a small part of the personality that you have at your own psychological makeup. 
And over the years, I have found myself considering it something outside of me, you know. Um, I remember I worked in a convenience store at one point, and it was downright annoying whenever poltergeist activity would act up because <laughs> it would uh, it would happen. All it would mean was that a mess that I had to clean up, you know. Uh, hmm. It was back in those days where you had to get a card. You had to buy a card to put minutes on your phone. You remember those, the phone cards? I remember. So there would be a rack with tons of those on them. And they'd all start flying off the hook one by one and <laughs> just fluttering in the air like somebody throwing playing cards everywhere. And you'd just be like, oh, come on. Now I have to pick those up. Why would you do that? You know, and I would find myself saying stuff like that where I would say, like, not now. Why would you do that now? You know, it, it was more of an annoyance to me than anything else. It really stopped being scary when I was like 13 or 14. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, um, so, I mean, there, it, it, I found myself like talking to, you know, quote unquote it, you know, just offhand, you know, like talking to it. But I mean, I guess it's not much different how you would talk to yourself, you know, it just, uh, you know, I might, mm. you know, hit my head on something and say, oh, Matt, you dummy, why would you do that? <laughs> you <know? laughs> yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, I think, I think this is all kind of folding neatly on itself with some of these, uh, some of these uh, concepts we've we've come up with is uh, uh, the subconscious does have a lot to do with it. And if you want to take that a step further into ideas that people have, like uh, Anthony Peake is a good example, or people that get into consciousness and reality and what exactly the nature of reality is. Um, even in mm. ancient Vedic texts and stuff, everything is phenomena. It's a phenomenal reality all around us that's on some quantum level coming from our mind anyway. So it's very possible that everything that exists in the entire universe is just a projection of my mind or your mind. Yeah. Well, I mind. I rather like <laughs> the idea that I'm just a figment of your imagination. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I very well could be. You've just been sitting here talking to yourself for an hour, Rick. Oh, uh, well, you know, it has <laughs> at least you had a lot to say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm interested too in, with what you experience with that nice time being lifted, if if it's a quality that can be, if you can learn to control it. Oh yeah, I've been because, down that road. You know, it would it wouldn't be not so much an answer, not to go back to needing answers, but you know, when people talk about well, how did they, how did these past civilizations build these incredible structures? And, yeah. And and the truth is that they were very, they were probably just very talented, and their understanding of geometry and how to build things is just something that we don't quite get yet yeah it's a lost art but when you talk about nightstands being lifted yeah with no no visible apparatus just kind of yeah and yeah. if you could control that ability then you know it'd be handy maybe <laughs> oh I, sh I sure wish <laughs> i could do it on purpose the best i could do um uh, you know, I, I never actively tried to, but I, I always assumed that it, you wouldn't be able to. I have a tendency to believe that with a lot of the kind of magical or mystic stuff, the the moment you start profiting mm. off of it or taking advantage of it too much is where it's going to start mm. to diminish or your returns will diminish. So for that reason, I never really charged for tarot readings when yeah. I did tarot readings. I would um I would, I would say you're welcome to give me a donation, but I don't put a price on it because I I, I feel like I, I don't know I, I, it's just an intuitive sense I have that that if I were to learn how to move things with my mind and then tried to be 
like Yuri Geller and go on TV <laughs> and bend spoons. You know, I mean, it's worked out great for him, actually, now that I think of it. But um, if uh, I, I don't know, I, I sense that there's something karmically wrong with that. I'd rather just leave it, leave it alone and observe it when it happens. And, you know, for what it's worth, it hasn't happened in quite a while. I think it's been at hmm. least five or six years since I've had had anything uh, really move in my presence. Interestingly enough, the times it did in more recent memory were a result of me telling somebody about it and them not believing it. Like, not straight out calling me a liar, but saying, okay, well, I'm sure you saw some things, but there must be an explanation, an individual explanation for each mm-hmm. thing you saw, you know? And I'd say, well, you know, okay, suit yourself. And this happened at a cafe that I was working at in about 2001, 2002, somewhere around there. And um, my coworker just said, you know, I, I don't believe in any of that stuff. So, I mean, that, I'm sure there's a rational explanation. I, I just, and I'm not calling you a liar. I just don't, don't see how that's possible. And I said, oh, you know, suit yourself. So the cafe is closed and he's counting the drawer and I walk off to go mop the bathrooms. <laughs> and as I'm mopping, I just hear a tremendous clatter come from the inside of the cafe. And uh, he kind of shouted and, and, before I can put the mop down, I just hear him shouting, I did not do that. What happened? I did not <laughs> do that. And I, I came out of the bathroom with the mop and I'm like, what? You didn't do what? I look over. We had stacks and stacks of CDs just next to the stereo on a shelf behind the register. So from behind him, these CDs just kind of exploded in every direction in the cafe, just all over the place. They were on tables out in, in the seating area. They were on the counter. They were behind the counter. They were um, on top of the deli section, you know. <laughs> I think one of them was on top of the register. And he was just standing in the middle of just an explosion of CDs. <laughs> there was uh, nothing that could account for it, you know. He was shocked, like, just standing there with his with his jaw flapping in the breeze. And I walked in and I said, well, I wouldn't worry about it too much. I'm sure there's a rational explanation. <laughs> I went back to mopping. <laughs> Because, I mean, that for me, that was normal. And, and uh, it always amused me how if somebody, if somebody doubted it or um, didn't, want, didn't want to consider it, that, that that's when it would manifest. Uh, mm. <laughs> that's part of the trickster nature of the whole thing, I think. There's an Eresian element there, I think. Hail Eris. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hail Discordia. <laughs> that's a callback. No, but I... I I, I think what you said before, I, I like your, your idea about you know, not trying to profit off this phenomenon and, and your connection to it. I think that's a, that's a nice way of looking at it and, and how it could diminish if you did try and start to use that. I, I think it's always good to have a sort of a, a, a positive relationship with this sort of thing. And, you know. Oh, yeah. It's better than the contrary. I think the more you fight about it or the more you stress about it or worry about it, the harder it becomes for you, you know? Hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think you should just uh, be nice to the spirits. Yeah. I, the, I think the most you can hope for in most situations, I know a lot of television tries to promote the idea that everything's demonic or, uh, you know, there's even that idea in ufology that aliens are actually demons, you know? Mm. Um, I think when you encounter phenomena, you recognize that it happened and come to terms with it. The acknowledgement is, is a big part to me. 
I think just just basic acknowledgement. You don't need to engage beyond that. You don't need to uh, try to get rid of it. Acknowledge that it's there and, and move on yeah. with life, you know. And uh, it's something you can think about and conjecture about. But I think that's the healthiest way to deal with it, you know. Mm. I think the poltergeist activity that I experienced was always way scarier and uh, way more intense when we were scared of it. Hmm. <laughs> Once I kind of got used to it, it was like I said, I could just say, oh, come on, knock it off, you know, <laughs> instead of screaming and running into the other room, you know. Uh, and, you know, there is that identity. Uh, yeah, the, <laughs> I'm sorry. There is that idea that a lot of these entities feed off of negative energy. So um, I guess don't feed them that. <laughs> yeah. There's a playfulness to it. You know, it's almost like a kid playing with you. And a, or a kid antagonizing you, trying to get under your skin. If you don't let them get under your skin, then they just stop because it's not fun for them anymore. Hmm. You know? <laughs> so, so yeah. I don't know. Lots of different ways to look at it. I think I'm at a point in my life where I've come to terms with quite a lot of it, and it's just fun to think about and read about and talk to people about. Yeah, definitely, man. I mean, I, I think you've, you've summed it up in a very um, ambassadorial way. <laughs> Oh, thank you. That's very kind of you, Rick. Um, we actually do have an ambassador uh, in in the UK, oh. and uh, he's he's gotten some news uh, interviews and stuff recently. So, and I thought he I thought he did a great job being an ambassador. So I uh, uh, I wanted to give him props too, uh, <laughs> um, but uh, he's. Um, I had said I, I only hope that I, I can I can represent Luminal Earth as well if I'm in an interview situation, <laughs> you know. So uh, yeah, yeah. So I got a, I got a bit rambly just now, but no, not at all. No, I I think you're a great ambassador between us and the other world. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, the deputy deputy director of Luminal Compliance, I guess. So. <laughs> Cool. Well, Matt, this has been so much fun. Thank you for coming back on the podcast. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank, th thank you for having me, Rick. And here's to another year of some other sphere. Yeah. I know that you'll do great things. Thank you. Just to remind everybody, how can they find your blog? Oh, right. Yeah, that. Um, so I write on my blog when I can. It's uh, apstrange.com. Um, and you can find me on Twitter as Aficionado Prodigiosus, the easiest to remember name, uh, <laughs> at APRO, and then I should pop up as a as a uh, suggestion. So think think like APRO, like you know uh, the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, and do an at symbol there, and you'll find me on Twitter. So. Brilliant. Well, you're definitely worth following because you're you're always tweeting very interesting stuff. All right. Well, thanks. Thanks for that. That's very kind of you, Rick. Thank you very much. Ah, uh, you're welcome, man. Thank you. All right. Thanks. All right. Talk to you later. I think it was a good time to get Matt back on the show. A lot has happened since his last appearance, and it's great to see him involved with the Liminal Earth Project. He's exactly the sort of person that can help it grow and fulfil its potential. He made some great points in our chat too, 
especially that sometimes the point of a mystery is to be mysterious, to get us thinking and engage with our imagination. As much as you might think you want the answer to the thing that fascinates you the most, would you really be satisfied if you did? It's worth thinking about. Well, that's all for now. If you've had an unusual experience and would be interested in discussing it in an episode of the podcast, you can email me at someothersphere at gmail.com and you can find Some Other Sphere on Twitter at spherical underscore pod. Until next time, thank you very much for listening.